evening, everybody, and welcome to our evening primetime Bible study for Calvary Baptist Church here in Gaylord, Michigan. Today is March 21st, and we are continuing this ongoing series of studies that really are focused on the history, the history not only of the Baptist faith, but just of Christianity since the time of Jesus and the apostles. And in the weeks since the first of the year, we've covered topics such as the early creeds, the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed, and the way that that early established church, the Roman Catholic Church as we know it, took a very strong stance defending the concept of the Trinity, defending the fact that Jesus is fully God and fully man, defending the concept of the virgin birth. Many of those core doctrines, we owe a debt of gratitude that they stood firm when those doctrines were under attack. And then we continued to talk through the way that around the year 1054, the pressure had finally built and there was a split between the East and the West and it formed what we know as the Eastern Orthodox Church, typically Greek Orthodox and later on Russian Orthodox and all of those as being separate from the Western Church. Western meaning what we know primarily as main Europe and that was the Roman Catholic Church. And then about 400 years later, the splits began to happen again, starting in 1517 in modern-day Germany as Martin Luther began the Protestant Reformation, followed soon after by men like John Calvin and Ulrich Zwingli and John Knox up in Scotland. And we talked about all of those things. And then also during that same 1500s time frame, the Church of England, it breaks away from the Roman Catholic Church over a number of things, including the authority of the Pope and the Church's stance regarding divorce. And so then we got to mid-February and we were talking about how the Roman Catholic Church responded to that, an event called the Council of Trent. And then later in February, we talked about some of the tension that was building between Scotland and England and Holland and the Reformation movements there, including the, the battle between the followers of Jacobus Arminius and John Calvin. The debate was how much does man's free will really carry in the matter of coming to a saving grace, to a, a, a salvation. And then at the end of February, we talked about the beginnings of colonial times here in America. The early settlers here, many of them came for religious freedom, and they were Puritans and pilgrims. And we talked about those two separate groups and kind of planted the seeds a little bit on how they really merged with elements of some of the Baptists in England. And the Baptists in early America really were somewhat different because they were, like so many things about America, a bit of a melting pot. Last week, we talked about the beginning of the movement of theological liberalism in Europe with those two guys whose names I love to pronounce, Schleiermacher and Kant. And so then after that, we talked about a, a reformation within a reformation, the works of John Wesley and Charles Wesley, his brother, attempting to reform the Church of England and resulting in what became known as the Methodist movement, which in the next century, in the 1800s, 
really blossomed here in the United States, particularly with many of those revival movements. Many of those revivalists and those circuit-riding preachers that we've heard stories about were Methodists. And so now we're ready to talk about Baptists here in not only colonial America, but when we get into the 1700s and then after America declares our independence. What about them? So that's what we're going to focus on today here on our primetime Sunday night podcast. Let's pray and then we'll get started. Heavenly Father, thank you for the power and the blessing of technology that we can have this message available just on demand anytime for anybody who wants to hear it. And we pray that you will move hearts so that they will want to hear it. And if it touches their heart and they find it eye-opening, that they'll be willing to share the link that was sent around to email that to other people to encourage them to listen as well. And we're just asking that you'll focus our brains and our, our hearts on what we have to say here for this 30 minutes together, and that it will be to your glory, and I'm asking this in your name. Amen. All right, so here we are on um, March 21st as we talk about Baptists in early America. So let's talk about the year. To give you an idea of the, the background, we're talking, let's say, 1650 up through uh, the Declaration of Independence, 1776. You know, about a 100-year time frame. The thing that we have to do is look back at some names I mentioned several podcasts ago, those English Baptists that migrated to the American colonies, and there were two key leaders here in colonial America, Roger Williams and John Clark. They were in Rhode Island, and I think we talked about the way that um, Mr. Williams established the first Baptist church in America. It was in Providence, Rhode Island. Well, Mr. Clark was the minister in Newport, Rhode Island. There is actually some debate about which one was first. But those were some of the earliest people who specifically identified as Baptist. Now, not to go into a great deal of detail out again, but remember, we've acknowledged that many of us were taught that Baptists are not Protestants and that we have been in an unbroken chain ever since the day of the Apostles. And, you know, that, that's a partial truth, but we're heavily influenced by what happened in the Protestant Reformation, especially Baptists in America were products of that. And so we do need to understand that. Now, that being said, when you think of those early days, Baptists were not without controversies. Even uh, back in the 1600s, they were already splitting. <laughs> and it just, it was unfortunate. But there were different issues. And one of the big ones, it didn't fully come to a head until you know, 90 years after America became an independent nation. But already in the 1770s, Baptists went on, mission, on missions in the southern U.S., in the, those southern states, even before they were states, as part of what was known of as the Great Awakening. I'll probably have a separate podcast on the Great Awakening uh, in the future. But it became an issue because 
The concept of quality in the eyes of God caused many people who were slaves to convert to the Baptist faith. But slaves were still urged by white clergy to remain obedient to their masters. And out of fear that black churches would lead to rebellion, white slave owners required converted slaves to attend white churches. And the result of this was the creation of something they used to call hush harbors, where slaves would secretly blend Christianity with their roots and their history, which came from some of the African religions in practice. And that is some of the roots of why many African-American Baptist churches have a heavier social gospel emphasis. They tend to teach what we call liberation theology, the idea that God is on the side of the oppressed and the downtrodden, and certainly, yes, he is on the side of that. But when that becomes the entire lens that you view Scripture through, and if you've grown up hearing your grandparents tell you the stories that their grandparents told them of some of the mistreatment and, and some of the segregation and just things that you know, can never be justified or defended, but nonetheless, there were Baptist churches, even as late as the 1950s, that were soft on that issue and really didn't want to speak up and condemn that. And so for that reason, that's something that, particularly in the southern part of the country, remains a big point of tension. Nobody defends slavery. But there were other issues at work, and there's no question that it still is a soft spot or a sore spot is the better way to put it, uh, amongst many folks. Now, when it comes to Baptists in America, there are so many different divisions and so many different uh, camps and subcamps. It's amazing how many of them that there are. And part of it is because one of the things about the founding of our nation is individual freedom, individual autonomy, and sometimes... I'm going to suggest that that carries itself out in ways that aren't necessarily good. One of the reasons why so many Baptist churches have run into problems over the years, I would argue, is because they can. Because their decisions are so local, so autonomous, and they become so isolated that they head down a road that's kind of a dead-end street, and there isn't anybody that has the authority to say, stop, you can't do that. <laughs> and I, I think that we've seen evidence of that in our lifetime. Many of you have been aware of local Baptist churches, whether they be local here or local in the community you used to live in, that ran into so many problems like that because they lacked any set of bumpers. The idea, of course, is that the Holy Spirit will guide them, but man's ability to have his heart hardened and blinders placed on him uh, just knows no bounds, even in otherwise good churches. But that's one of the things about Baptist church governance. And that's where, here in early America, you ended up with a very interesting mix. An interesting mix that was known as congregationalism. Congregational churches. Now you might say, oh yeah, right, the congregational church across the street from the Alpine Eatery and right near downtown. And I'd say, well... Those are the modern-day successors of the old congregational churches. But today's congregational churches tend to be very liberal, very progressive. 
But what I'm speaking of it is, in a broader term, is a form of church governance. There are three different broad categories of church governance. There's an Episcopal government, such as the Episcopal Church, but as a general statement, it's church decisions that are made by bishops. The Presbyterian form of church governance is ruled by elders, and they have a system in which there are local and statewide and all of that. But then there's congregational church governance in which decisions are made on the basis of the congregation. Baptists are a form of congregational church governance. That seems foreign to, to many of you, but congregational government nearly always avoids a hierarchy, maintaining the local church that's directly answerable to God. Congregational government is found in many Baptist churches. We, in that sense, are a congregational church. A few years ago, we modified and I think clarified our church governing documents to basically say that when the church adopts an annual budget, typically in November or December for the, the new year, that budget includes in it the operations that we define as normal standard operations, and I, as the pastor, am given the authority to carry those out. There are certain things that I need to seek approval from the trustees, and I always consult with them, and there are other things in which the trustees nor I have the, the ability to approve. They require congregational approval. We have quarterly meetings, and that's how you make decisions on anything that is a change in policy or a significant change in practice. So in that sense, Baptists are congregational churches as it relates to the form of governance. But back in this era, really back to the six, middle 1600s and then up through the 1700s, you had this, this mix of those pilgrims and those Puritans and then some of them leaned more towards the Baptist side of things, and others leaned more towards what became Congregationalism. Many of those Congregational churches were heavily influenced by the Puritans. If you look at some of those classic old Congregational churches you'll find in New England, many of the, uh, I'm not talking the really grand ones that are tourist attractions today, like in Boston, there's a couple of them that, wow, but Many of the old ones in the smaller towns, um, their sanctuaries are so simple, no ornateness, nothing fancy. The idea was is it was very much a stepping away from the Church of England or the Roman Catholic Church. But over the years, those congregational churches changed to the point where they became very liberal. Today, that is the most liberal denomination that can even attempt to identify with biblical Christianity. I know folks at congregational churches who I would acknowledge as fellow believers, and I know folks at congregational churches that I think it'd be very difficult to make that case. Some of them are almost to the point where they're very close to a denomination called the Unitarian Universalist Association. At some point in the future, perhaps I'll speak about the Unitarian movement. But when it comes to Baptists, as with so many things in early America, we're kind of a mishmash. We're a Heinz 57. And the Baptist movement in early America had a million different flavors. 
And among those were two separate camps, particular Baptists and general Baptists. You might say, well, we're kind of particular. <laughs> I suppose that we are. But a particular Baptist were people who they believe in a particular atonement, as opposed to Baptists believe, that believe in a general atonement. In other words, particular Baptists today would be known as Reformed Baptists or Calvinistic Baptists. They have the view that man's free will is less than we think it is and is always subject to God's sovereign will. The general Baptists are more closely aligned with what I talked about a week ago with our Methodist friends who believe that man's free will has a, a higher level of influence in the decision of coming to faith. The Baptists that lean that way are Baptists that use phrases like, you're going to make a decision for Christ. You're going to ask Jesus to come into your heart. Those are phrases that suggest it's all our choice. And then when they say that, they have a tendency to forget that there was something moving on them. The Holy Spirit was calling on them, and I would argue even enabled them to answer that call. I even mentioned a week ago that the Methodist movement came up with a doctrine that they admit is an invented doctrine, but it's actually a good explanation. They call it prevenient grace, in which the Holy Spirit gives you just enough grace for you to realize how depraved that you are and that you need to answer God's call. Exactly which of these is the best explanation, of course, We'll not know for sure until one day when we're in glory with the Lord. But these are those two divisions, the particular Baptists and then the general Baptists that believed in a more general atonement, that salvation is available to everybody, but that people must choose. Now there's a third term in there about Baptists, and this developed in, in America, oh, the 1700s and somewhat the 1800s, regular Baptists. Now, you might, um, you might say, that sounds familiar, as in the General Association of Regular Baptist Churches. Um, there is a connection there, yes. Way back in colonial America, Roger Williams, that I mentioned before, he established the church at Providence, Rhode Island. And it was interesting, I just got a text message there, if you're wondering what that bink was. <laughs> it was Sherry sending me a text message. What happened in Providence, Rhode Island, was that first Baptist church, and eventually the general Baptists in America began to be called free Baptists, or free will Baptists, where the particular Baptists became known as regular Baptists. Regular today has a little different meaning. It simply means that they follow the regular or the rule of Scripture. Being a regular Baptist means that you're part of a church that holds to the concept of biblical orthodoxy and affirms that scripture is our ultimate authority of faith and practice. Of course, Calvary Baptist here has always been under that category, at least in that sense. We lean towards the more Calvinistic understanding of how someone comes to salvation, but typically we don't buy into all five points of that argument, recognizing that those are man-made arguments and not necessarily the ultimate answer. Our concern is more that not understanding how we came to a saving faith, but that people come to a saving faith. 
Now, as you went through that 1700s and into the 1800s, the, the tendency of these Baptist churches with individual autonomy and individual congregational church governance is they have a tendency to splinter and to split. And some of the splits were not just in the categories of regular and particular Baptist. There were regional differences between the North and the South, as I mentioned on that. The one in the South eventually came together to what is known as the Southern Baptist Convention. Uh, there is a Southern Baptist Church here in Gaylord. For years it was Alpine Village Baptist Church. Alpine Village Baptist Church closed last oh, September or October, and there is now a new church plant in the old Alpine building. It's called Passion Church but they are a, an SBC church, a Southern Baptist church. Our affiliation, the Michigan chapter of the GARBC, has its roots from when there was a split between the Northern and the Southern Baptists, and that's where the more liberal branch was formed, which today is called the American Baptist Church. They are more progressive. They ordain women. Uh, they, they hold some views that we wouldn't hold, but they are Baptist in terms of a general understanding of our atonement and their way of doing church governance. So when it comes to some of these other splits that happened, some of them went into subgroups that are known as sects, S-E-C-T, a sect. And there are so many of them, and some of them will come into play later on, including a, a group called the Plymouth Brethren that actually had a significant influence on Baptist doctrine, say, in the last 50 years or so, a man named John Nelson Darby and an approach called dispensationalism that many Baptist churches, including the history of Calvary here in Gaylord, would have adopted most of those views of dispensationalism. You say, what's that? Well, I'm going to have a sermon on that uh, later this spring or early summer, so I'm just going to defer to that. But there were subgroups, these sect groups, and I'll mention two of them, one called the Quakers. The Quakers, sometimes called the Society of Friends. And the Quaker movement was the idea that uh, they were going to emphasize holiness. And they had some significant difference, differences from us, but they do come away from the established, excuse me, the established Church of England. And they just have some practices that we would recognize and others that we would not. They had a tendency, a strong tendency, to uh, refuse to participate in war of any kind. They were pacifists. Dressing very plainly, refusing to swear any oath, as in, you know, to testify in a court of law, not going to do it. Their opposition to slavery and what was known as teetotalism, a teetotaler, you know, a complete rejection of any uh, consumption of alcohol. And there were even some subgroups and splits within there, but I want to mention one other subgroup that is kind of like a third cousin four times removed <laughs> to the Baptist movement with some connection to the Methodist movement. They were a break off of the Quakers, and they became known as the Shakers, sometimes the Shaking Quakers, because of their ecstatic behavior during worship services. They also had some very progressive ideas at the time, women taking on leadership roles alongside of men. 
but they're well known for some of their hymnody. One of the uh, famous shaker hymns that just became very well known is uh, Simple Gifts. Is the gift to be simple, is the gift to be free. And American composer Aaron Copland wrote an entire symphonic work called Appalachian Spring that heavily quotes that particular hymn tune. So you might say, where am I going with all of this? Well, what I'm trying to do is give us a bit about our history of Baptists here in America. And there's so much more to tell, but my overall point would be the following. Because by its very nature, our nation was the great melting pot of cultures and ethnicities that has had its effect on our churches. And when your churches are all independent and autonomous, you're going to have quite a variance of practice and understanding even from one town to the next. You have less of that when there is some kind of a structure above you, a hierarchy that puts in place some bumpers, some rudders, you might say. And that creates problems, too, having a hierarchy above you the way that, say, the Methodists do or the Presbyterians or the Episcopals or the Lutherans or the Catholic Church, of course, very much a hierarchy. When you have that, there are pluses and minuses, but we do believe that the biblical definition of a local church is that it is that. It is a member of the broader body of Christ, body of all believers that crosses denominational lines, at least in that they are true believers. But we do believe that local decision-making is, is the biblical way to do it. But here at Calvary, we have, last fall, we took a step of faith in which we recognize that, well, the decision should be local. That doesn't mean that in our own wisdom, we have the experience and the background in this local church to make well-informed decisions. And that's why we voluntarily chose to be a part of the Michigan chapter of the General Association of Regular Baptist Churches to give us some guidance and to give us some suggestions and, where appropriate, give us some support. And this spring and summer, now that uh, the winter is almost done, <laughs> cross your fingers on that one and keep praying that we're not going to have any major storms. But as we head through now this summer, I'm going to want to begin some more in-depth conversations with Ken Floyd, the state chairperson of the Michigan chapter, to get some advice about our difficulty with attracting and keeping younger families. Because obviously, if we can't keep and draw younger families, this church's days are limited. Uh, we don't have to be Einstein to figure that one out. And so I'm going to ask you to pray about that. I'm going to ask you to be praying that God will open our hearts and our minds about what he's calling us to do and what changes we have to make, keeping in mind these will be changes in method, not changes in message, but they'll be changes in method because they are necessary to pursue the mission, the mission of the church, which is to share the gospel with this local community as well as supporting missionaries to faraway places. In many ways, we are very blessed. We are very blessed. We've had a time in which we've had relatively little controversy and tension. But as you begin to seek to bring in more new people, particularly younger families, 
they're going to have different views and different understandings, and we're going to have to be ready and willing to have good, God-honoring conversations about that and to recognize that perhaps our way of doing things isn't the only way that's acceptable so long as our message does not change. That's always the challenge for any church, but it's certainly the challenge for Calvary here in Gaylord. So that's a little bit about our history as Baptists here in early America, both colonial America and, um, say, within the first 50 years after the Revolutionary War. Next week, we're going to talk about the beginning of what we know as the Pentecostal movement, to understand a little bit more about that movement, what it is, what it is not, and where it is that they, they think they're coming from in terms of scripture. I hope you'll be able to join us for that. I do enjoy putting these podcasts together. Take the time and share this link with a friend or two. Encourage them to listen to it. And I thank you for your time tonight. Have a great week. God bless you.